The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 3. find ourselves plowing through this, this amazing text, this precious section of Scripture and very important section of the book of Romans. Uh, we are in the middle of studying sola fide, which is the Latin for faith alone, and I was anchored that great doctrine, one of the solas, the five solas of the Reformation in this text itself, and we've made uh, no hurry uh, working our way through this. This will be uh, a lesson that Paul doesn't just teach here, he's going to illustrate it in the entire chapter of, verse, of uh, chapter 4, and he'll come back and explain the roots of it in chapter 5, he'll talk about the application of it in chapters 6 and 7 and 8. He'll talk about how it relates to Israel and his future in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And he will uh, not let go of this doctrine. And because he is not, it's the Spirit's obvious will that we should not either. We found our way to the end of Romans chapter 3. Let me read that text to put it in our mind. Romans chapter 3, verse 29. Or, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. There is so much confusion today, more than any other time in my lifetime, is, as far as I can observe, on what the mission of the church is. Said another way, what the content of the gospel is. Said another way, what good news the church and believers are to bring to those who need good news. I'd love to have an interview with each one of you. What's the mission of the church? What's the purpose of getting together? Why do we have church in general, the universal church? Why do we have church in particular, the local church? have a very good friend, a very precious friend, Joel James, who's a, a friend of mine. He's a missionary in South Africa. I've been down to South Africa four or five times to be with him. I'm actually scheduled to go back in 2015 to minister with him as well. Joel recently wrote a paper in which he actually was put in the position of being forced to answer the question as a missionary in a very significant place in the world for missions outreach. What is missions? What's the mission of the church? Which should be the same answer. What's the position of the gospel in that mission? I want to read to you the opening few paragraphs of the paper he wrote that actually has to begin to defend what the mission of the church is. It's worth quoting. You'll understand that he is in the middle of uh, seeing people who are coming as missionaries, and they're coming in the name of God, in the name of the gospel, and they're offering what they call missions work, but it's primarily the humanitarian efforts of the West, solving hunger, helping children with AIDS, 
aiding the poor. And none of us would say that that's a bad thing to do. A bad thing to do. But is it the mission of the church? Just listen to his tension. I read this this week. It was sent to me, and I, I just felt that tension, but it has everything to do with what we're studying this morning in Romans 3. He writes this. Evangelical missions in Africa is changing, or more accurately, it has changed. When my wife and I arrived in South Africa in 1995, virtually all of the theological conservative missionaries we met had come to do church planting and leadership training. No longer. Today, nearly all of the new missionaries coming to South Africa are focused on social relief, primarily orphan care, with the church tacked on as some kind of theological addendum. In fact, off the top of my head, I cannot think of more than one or two new missionaries whom I've met in South Africa in the last seven years whose main focus was not orphan relief. What we used to do, we're not doing anymore. There's been a mega shift in evangelical missions away from church planting and leadership training to mercy ministry and to social justice. In fact, missions, he says, uh, the missions agency representatives who regularly visit campuses of Christian colleges in the United States to recruit new missionaries tell us that if medical relief, orphan care, or digging wells is not the focus of your promotional material, you might as well not even set up your display table. The Christian campus isn't interested. In other words, the philosophy of missions is so clearly exemplified in the book of Acts, that is so clearly exemplified in the book of Acts, is out of vogue. It's no surprise the influential missional movement, the voices currently dominating the evangelical conversation about missions, are promoting a new kind of mission. Shalom, peace. Justice, social justice, or the gospel of good deeds and human flourishing. Of course, the better authors and speakers, because of their concern for biblical truth, emphasize the church and the preaching of the crucified Christ for sinners. However, across the board, a categorical shift in emphasis is unmistakable. The flags of social justice and mercy ministry now fly atop the flagpole of Christian missions. And the new generation of conservative evangelicals, he calls them the young, restless, and reformed, has bought in. Short-sighted churches, keen to support their enthusiastic young missionaries, loosen their purse strings, whatever the theological significance or insignificance of the mission. And market-sensitive missions agencies, having noted the change, are reworking their images and promotional literature to accommodate the new Peace Corps mentality toward missions. As a result... The evangelical church in the West is commissioning and sending a generation of missionaries to Africa whose primary enthusiasm is for orphan care, distributing medicine, combating poverty, digging wells, and other social projects, social justice projects. For the most part, these new missionaries value the church, but primarily as a convenient platform from which to run and fund their mercy projects. Whatever the immediate benefits, some real and some imagined, of poverty relief, clean water, and orphanages, what will be the long-term consequences of the fact that 
a whole generation of Christian missionaries in Africa has put social relief first on its agenda and church planning and leadership training at best second. Last paragraph. Long after the AIDS orphans have grown up, the wells have been blocked with sand, and the medical clinics have closed due to a lack of Western funding, the people of Africa will still need churches to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if the Western church continues to send missionaries focused on mercy projects and social justice, who will plant and pastor those churches? Will the church in Africa five decades from now be stronger because of this new social relief, end quote. Now, let me say from the beginning in responding to what he's saying, I, 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 I think that it's pure and undefiled religion, as the Lord said in James, to take care of widows and orphans. We're supposed to take care of the poor around us. That is not the problem. The problem is when you do that instead of preaching the gospel. When you do that in place of planting churches. I want kids to have a home. I want AIDS patients to be ministered to. I want wells dug so people aren't thirsty and food plots planted so people eat. But understand that that is only temporary relief in respect to eternity. The question is not should we be involved in those things. Of course, the church has always been involved in those things. But which is the dog and which is the tail? You say, what does that have to do with what we're about in Romans? Listen to very insightful words from S. Lewis Johnson in his commentary on Romans as he connects these dots for us. This is really important. I know I'm reading a lot, but just hang on. Lewis Johnson says, Since the great truth of justification by faith is at the heart of Paul's letter to the Roman church, then the epistle may have come as a sort of surprise to the modern ecclesiastics, the modern leaders of the church. One might have expected the apostle to address the believers in Rome, a city crammed full of social problems, with a social manifesto, or at least a recitation of the primary truths of Christianity in their application to the social problems of the imperial city. Rome was a city of slaves, but Paul doesn't preach against slavery. It was a city of lust and vice, but he does not aim his mightiest guns at these evils. It was a city of gross economic injustice, but he does not thrust the sword of the Spirit into the vitals of that plague. It was a city that it had been erected upon and fed upon and prospered by the violence of the rapidity of war. But the apostle doesn't expiate upon its immorality. Apparently, if one is to judge the matter from a strictly biblical standpoint, Paul did not think that social reform in Rome was an evangelical imperative. He goes on, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ solved the crucial and urgent need for the society as a whole and for the people in particular. Can I read that again? The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ solved the crucial and urgent need for the society, Rome, as a whole and for the people in particular. It is still the imperative of the Christian church. And the Christian church will advance only to the extent that its gospel 
advances, end quote. What's the point, Rick? We're talking about what the purpose of the church is. And if Paul is to be taken seriously, the purpose of the church is the propagation of the gospel. And if we take that seriously, we then have to ask, what is the gospel? And if we take that seriously, we have to ask, who are the pastors, church leaders, missionaries, church planners who are taking this gospel, and do they have the message right? Let me say again so I'm not misunderstood. No one in his right mind with any degree of Christian decorum would want orphans without homes or people without food and water. But to feed people and give them physical life with no attention to their need for eternal life is fundamentally and evangelically irresponsible. Paul wrote Romans to the Romans. I went to seminary to discover that. It's a letter written to a group of believers who are in Rome. And as S. Lewis Johnson talks about, it was a horrific collision of sin. To look at the city of Rome in the days of Paul is to think of um, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and New York all in one. It was the exporter of sin. It was the collector of sinful practices. It was the center of the world. It was the imperial city of the empire. It was where, in the people's mind, God lived. Remember, Caesar set himself up as God, and those who were privileged enough to live in Rome then literally, in their mind, lived in the shadow of God. One of the more interesting curiosities about the early Christians is they were accused of atheism. Remember? You know why they were accused of atheism? Because they didn't believe Caesar was God. They saw themselves as a unique group, but they also saw themselves as blessed by the gods so that if you had money, you could abuse the entire slave market. North of 90% of the population of Rome was slaves, were slaves. Very small aristocracy ruled the better part of Rome. That's significant in looking at the vast social range of people to whom Paul wrote the book of Romans. The fact that he doesn't even address that issue is significant. What he does address, though, is the fact that the gospel is a one-size-fits-all for salvation. There's no gospel for the rich and a different one for the poor. There's no gospel for the Jews and a different for the Gentiles. There's no gospel for those who are with and those who are without. There's no gospel for Jews and Greeks and men and women and slave and free. As you read through the epistle of Romans and you read Galatians and Ephesians especially, he, he just accents and puts an exclamation on this point everywhere he can. The gospel is one size fits all. It's the only way to come to God for anyone and for Everyone. If you want a title for today, it's the only one way to heaven. In chapter one, he called out the Gentiles. He said, You are a group of people who are bad and getting worse. You are a people who've exchanged your internal tug of your heart toward God for the corruption of idolatry. You've worshipped the creature rather than the creator. You have actually exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You've not only exchanged that lie, you've believed that lie and started telling that lie. 
You are without hope. And not only do you do all that, you pursue every sort and every level of immorality. Not only that, you give approval to those who pursue this immorality. You want to approve immorality in others so that you can justify it in yourself. And you can just hear the Jewish readers going, yeah, that's right. Paul, let them have it. Those rascal, immoral, worthless Gentiles. And then he comes to chapter 2 and says, oh, and so are you, Jews. You who actually accuse others are guilty of the things that you accuse them of. Then in chapter 3, in the beginning, he, he, he has some summary statements. These are massive theological peers that hold together the the, the framework of the gospel. There's none righteous. What do you mean, Paul? Not even what? One. How about this? There's none who seeks after God. What? There is none righteous. No seekers. Why does he do that? He basically took the two main categories of people, two main categories in the church, the pagans, everyone who believed everything outside of biblical religion, which is Judaism in the Old Testament at the time, and he took those Jews who were under the law and, and saw the law as the gracious gift that it was from God but had adulterated it into a system of work salvation. He says, these two categories of people are ultimately lost and without hope. But there is hope, and this was the surprising message we're going to look at today. And that hope was not in social justice. That hope was not in solving world hunger. That hope was in saving people for eternity through the gospel. As we look at this, these last three uh, verses in chapter 3 today, I want to discover with you Two essential categories for applying the doctrine of justification by faith. How do we apply this? How do we understand? Okay, we get that you've been saying a man is saved by believing God and believing what God has done in Christ. And you're made right, justified, declared not guilty because you've made that statement of belief in the gospel and in God. Well, how does that work its way out, especially... The Jews are asking, how does it work its, its way out with, with us as Jews? Are you really saying that God dealt with us in the Old Testament for all these thousands of years and now has come and this one prophet named Jesus, nailed to a cross, has said, okay, you guys set that aside and come with me? It's a good question. And the Gentiles also have to say, now, if God has come in Christ, who is a Jew, has he now moved himself away from Judaism, away from the law, and given us a salvation so that we are now the light of the world? They're confused as to what, what does this thing do with each other? Well, in verses 29 and 30, he talks about, first of all, the universal application of justification by faith. Now, remember, the, the doctrine of justification by faith, let me review, is that God actually declares us righteous. Now, listen, we talked about this last week. That's different than making us righteous. Making us righteous would, is what he does in glorification. We're absolutely done with fighting with sin. Won't that be a great day? 
That's called infusing righteousness. That's the Catholic doctrine. You're infused with righteousness. You're not infused with righteousness. He declares us righteous, and the rest of our life we try to become righteous through sanctification. And there's a whole few chapters waiting for us on that ahead. And it should be an alarm and a glorious alarm and a I can't believe this moment every time we think that God saves sinners by believing what God has done to save sinners. And it's that simple. God saves by faith. That's how we appropriate the grace, his kindness that he gives. How does that work its way out? Well, Paul asks a question talking about this application, and he first of all talks about its universal application. This would have been a surprise to the Jews. He asks a question. This is in a series of five questions that he's asking uh, at the end of chapter 3 and the first, of, first two verses of chapter 4 in, in, in order to, to, to set things straight. He's a great apologist. He's a great uh, lawyer. He's a great arguer. He anticipates the question someone would have and goes ahead and asks it and then answers it. So he asks this question. Is God the God of the Jews only? That's a great question. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? And the answer is yes. Let's start with trying to understand the Jewish mindset that Paul was addressing. Prior to the gospel, prior to the life and death of Christ, the Jews had a very understandable and credible reason to glory in their Jewishness, didn't they? No other nation had a legitimate claim that the legitimate claim that Israel had. It's remarkable. They were God's chosen people. Imagine before the time of Christ being able to look someone in the eye who's not a Jew and say, with all legitimacy and all authority and absolute truth, I am a part of God's special chosen people. And to be right. Now, as we'll see in a minute, the thing they missed is that the reason God did that is so that they would invite the rest of the nations to become that way with God. But they had failed in that. They turned inward. They had been proud of their Jewishness. They had been given God's law. What a privilege. His word. They had been given the sign of the covenant, circumcision. However, when the gospel came, get this, the basis of their glorying in God ceased. The fact that the Messiah to his own people, the Jews, had been rejected, suspended their unique place held in God's economy until a future day. Let me explain that. It's really important theology there. It suspended the Jewish nation as God's special people. It didn't do away with it. It suspended it until a future. And we'll get to that in Romans 9 through 11. Right now, he says, it's odd to say, Remember what Jesus said to the Jewish nation? Under a curse. Why would the Jews be under a curse? Because, remember the fig tree? Because they rejected the Messiah that they prayed for, were prophesied to about, that they desired and wanted, that they wanted to be saved by. And God said, here he is. And they said, no, we'll kill him. Unimaginable. One would expect God to say, I'm done with you. I sent you my son. Remember the parable? I sent you my prophets, you killed them, sent my son. What would happen if I sent my son and he killed him? 
One would expect God to turn his back, and yet in Deuteronomy, we'll see this in a few weeks, over and over and over, he makes a promise to his people that's eternal regarding his love for them, and it's regarding the future of them dwelling a certain piece of real estate. So what's going on right now? God has suspended that, not rejected it. That's what he's going to say at the end of verse 31. And now he is working. His chosen people are not the Jews in our time. They're Christians. Just for a minute, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to see this. This would have been very shocking words. These would have been shocking words to a Jew. Peter is talking to a group of believers who are comprised of Jews and Gentiles, all right? They've, they've been saved. And listen to what he says to them. He's not talking to Jews, but he uses the Jewish terminology. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, stop right there. You is the church. You are the Christians that Peter is talking to. But you are a chosen race. That's very Jewish language. You are a royal priesthood. That's very Jewish designation. A holy nation. That's exact Jewish terminology. A people for God's own possession. He's in Isaiah. He's in Deuteronomy. He's in Exodus talking about these things. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Jesus, of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now look what he says. For you... Once we're not a people. This wasn't, you weren't Jews. You were not a people. But now you are, wow, you Jews, Gentiles together are what? The people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see what he's saying? God is now working through the church. And I'm so tempted to tell you all the reasons that he will come back and fulfill all the eternal promises he made to Israel, we'll get there. He will come back and fulfill those promises. The Jews thought, think about this, that they owned God. They were supposed to think that God owned them and wanted them to be a light to the nations. They flipped that and said, no, they have the corner on and were possessive of the God of the universe. They had the Jonah syndrome. You know what the Jonah syndrome is? Jonah told prophet, go preach to the Assyrians, go, go preach to Nineveh. He goes 2,000 miles the opposite direction. God, they throw him overboard. The fish gets sick of him, throws him up on the land. Marches up the way. And this is Jonah. Jonah comes to these wicked Gentiles, these pagans, these Assyrians. And this is the way Jonah preaches. You know, um, I, I don't suppose you would want to repent, would you? Hoping that they wouldn't. And the greatest revival in human history happened. Half a million Gentiles were converted. The whole city turns to God. And one would think Jonah would be Excited about that. What does he do? He goes up on the hill looking at the city. He's bitter and brooding. He finds a little bit of shade underneath this big leaf. It's hot. He's angry. 
And then God sends a caterpillar to eat the shade away. And then you turn the page, and the book's done. <laughs> you want chapter five of Jonah, and it only has chapter, four chapters. What had happened? Jonah is a great illustration of God's heart. God's heart was to speak through his covenant people to the nations for salvation. And Paul is saying it's still his same heart through the church. He's been proclaiming the gospel's universal reach. He's, he has to establish the point that for God to be the God of salvation for anyone, he's not tied exclusively to the Jewish nation. And they thought he was. He's speaking to the Jews who would have had considerable objections to the gospel, and he knew these objections. Why? Because he had had them. He had been a Jew his whole life. He understood the recalcitrance, the resistance to God doing a work in the Gentiles. Look back at the text. Is God the God of the Jews only, he asked the Jews? No one would have said anything in that room when he asked that question. But you know what they were saying inwardly? Yeah. And if they want him, they have to come to us. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? And before they can answer, he answers. Yes. Of Gentiles also. That word also is important. He is the God of the Gentiles. This was a radical thought in the same way he's the God of the Jews. One God. Since, indeed, verse 30, God who will, now we're back to our declaring righteous, declaring not guilty. He will justify, he uses the designation he already used back in chapter 2 of the Jews and the Gentiles. The circumcised and the uncircumcised. God will justify the circumcised, the Jews, how? By faith. And he justifies the uncircumcised through the law, through keeping the commandments, through becoming Jewish, through becoming circumcised. No, no, what does he say? Through faith. And this is all a designation that goes back to saying that God is one. He is the same God, the only true, the only living God. The doctrine of sola fide is universal in terms of its only way to heaven. It doesn't save everybody. It's the only way anybody can be saved. Now, that would have the Jews saying, well, what, what about doing stuff? What, what, what about the law? And let me give you a little bit of background from what we talked about the last two studies the doctrine of sola fide, faith alone, is not, listen, it's not faith in faith. Having faith in faith is not what saves anyone. Having faith in Christ and what he's done is saving. Be careful that you don't have faith in faith. We have faith in Christ. It's in his atonement, in his sacrifice. But remember, the doctrine of justification by faith alone does not imply that faith exists alone. It doesn't mean that when you have faith, you don't have to live it out. You don't have to work. This is going to be a theme. He is going to just crank the screws on in the next four chapters. Faith alone justifies. But 
Not faith that is alone justifies. Say, what do you mean? In 1960, excuse me, in 1648, would have been a late date for the Puritans. 1648, the Puritan leaders got together and adopted a confession of faith, a doctrinal statement of sorts. And this is what they said. Very, very important words. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is alone the instrument of justification. Is that fair? We believe that. Listen to what, he said, what they said again. Faith, uh, receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is alone the instrument of justification. Yet, it is not alone in the justified person. But it is ever accompanied with all other saving graces. It is no dead faith, but a faith that works by love, end quote. Luther said, it's impossible. It is as impossible to separate works from faith as it is possible to separate heat from light from fire. You say, why do you talk about that? Because the Jews, their, their struggle was, well, they're... If it's only faith alone, and we'll see it in verse 30, then obedience to the law doesn't even matter. You can live however you want to. He's going to answer that in verse 30. Just for a moment before we go on, the fact that he's talking about God being one, you understand what he's doing here. He is using the greatest focal point for the Jew of any scripture and turning it on its head to extend to the Gentiles. What is the great uh, scripture that the Jews all, all um, have uh, all over their home? They have it in the, in the tassels uh, on their forehead and their wrist. It's the great Shema. We'll get there in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Paul is basically using that doctrine and saying, you're right. He's the one God and the only way of salvation to everyone, not just you, but to the Gentiles as well. The reality that God is one and there's only one way to his righteousness is a significant pastoral concern of the book of Romans. Since God is one and has only one way to heaven, it would make sense that he would make that known to everyone, not just the Jews. It's the heart of God. Psalm 117, this is in the Jewish scripture. Praise the Lord, all nations. Is that not simple enough? Laud him, all peoples. I love the prophecy of Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 32, where he takes the little Jesus and looks at Mary and says, he will be the hope of the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is a week old, brought him to the temple to, to be circumcised. Simeon says, now I can die because I've seen the Messiah. He takes the little child Little Jesus in his arm looks at Mary and says a lot of stuff, but one thing he says really critical is he will be a light of revelation. He will be the voice of God, the way to know God to the Gentiles. He desires to grant salvation to the nations, not just to Israel. I cannot resist. Would you turn back over to Acts for a moment? This was the critical issue in the early church, in the book of Acts especially. You know who struggled with it most? First Pope, no, Peter. Peter. Look at verse um, 
Acts chapter 10. Well, let's pick it up in verse 34, and we'll read down into the middle of chapter 11. You know this passage well. Peter really believed, and he struggled. Remember Galatians? Paul, Paul in Galatians confronts Peter and says, Peter's teaching people you have to be circumcised to be saved. He says, no, 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 it's by faith. Opening his mouth, Peter said, this is after Gentiles have been converted, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is to welcome him. Wow, what a missionary appeal Peter has in his mind there. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of who? Of who? All. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism of John, which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit, with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were opposed by the devil, for God was in him. We are witnesses of all things. He did, not, he did both in the land of Jews and in Jer- Jerusalem. He, they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross, and God raised him up from the dead on the third day, granting him to become visible, not to all people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He ordered us to preach to the people. And to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Nothing about Jews there, everybody. Of him, all the prophets bear witness through his name. Everyone who bears, uh, who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Would you see that word, everyone? You see that? It's important. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon him. And all those who were listening to the message, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing him speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, the Gentiles, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can they? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay on for a few days. Down in chapter 11, he goes back and gives a report to the Jews. And you know what they said? No way. No way. They can have the crumbs off the table, but they can't be a part of the gospel mission. And yet it was. You know what happened back uh, in the early part of chapter 10. We talked about it so often. God gives Peter a vision. He drops a sheet in front of him and says, rise, kill, eat, which would have been a good thing to do, except these were unclean animals. There were probably pigs on that sheet, which a Jew was not to eat. He says, rise, kill, eat. Every time I have a BLT, I thank God for Acts chapter 10. We are no longer under the Mosaic um, uh, dietary laws. Peter had to do that. This was the problem, the significant problem of the first believer's In Acts, is God the God of all? Is salvation one way, or is it the Jewish way and the Jesus way? Romans 9, 24, even us whom he called not from among Jews, but also from among Gentiles. Romans 10, 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. 
For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Romans 15, 19, in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem round as far as Erichium, uh, um, I'm saying that word wrong, Illyricium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Point is, from Jewish nation all the way to the Gentiles. No discriminating target. If you had a pulse, Paul would preach the gospel to you. Can I ask just a really important side note on this? What implications does that have for us with our heart for missions? What implication does that have for our heart for giving for missions? It's only... Only three choices. Go, give so others can go, or be disobedient. Those are the only three options. If this is God who wants the gospel to go forth, mercy ministries can ski in that wake, but the boat is the gospel. If our message is to take the gospel out, to send it in our area and all around our country and all around the world, What are we doing toward that? Well, just a little footnote. Uh, our missions committee is working hard on answering that question for us, with us. Paul's point is very simple. The application of justification is first and foremost a universal appeal, has a universal reach. Don't ever think anyone is beyond the reach of the gospel. Secondly, more briefly, he says the personal application of justification by faith needs to be understood. Second category for applying it is not only understanding that it's the only way that goes to everyone, but, but personally, how, does that, how do we deal with it personally? Now, in order to understand this, you have to get back into the mind of the Jew. Now, we, we've, through Paul, we've kind of beaten up the Jews for a few chapters here, and I understand that, but we need to be very sympathetic to the Jewish mindset then and now. They would have asked the question, a right question, a good question. You may time out. For centuries, for millennia, we have held the word of God. We have owned the law of God. We have loved the word of God. We have cherished the sign of circumcision. We've been faithful to God. Is that just all null and void? Did God just wipe his hands with the Old Testament and now it's in with the New? Did he wipe his hands with the Old Covenant and it's in with the New? Be careful, be careful, be careful. There are those who would answer yes. There are evangelicals who will answer yes. I told you of a friend of mine who looked me right in the eye and said, God, he said this, God is done with Israel. They had their chance and blew it. Now he's dealing with the church. They had their chance. Does the gospel throw away the first 39 books of the Bible? More specifically, the first five books, the the Torah, the law. What does he say? It's the strongest Greek language you can get. May it never be on no circumstances, under no condition, is that true. 
Now, before he answers that, you can hear them saying, well, hang on. If we're not under law and we're under the gospel, if, if we don't have to obey the law to be saved, but we're under believing by sola fide to be saved, then what, what about all those commandments? What about that? What do we do with that? He says, on the contrary, we actually, it's an interesting word. We establish it. We confirm it. We apply it. We apply the law. What does it mean to apply, to establish, to uphold the law? Well, the doctrine of sola fide does not, nor has it ever, erased and dissolved the law of God. We have to be careful here of not going with the hyper-covenantal people who say God's done with Israel, or the hyper-dispensationalist who says there's nothing in the Old Testament or in the law that has anything to do with a New Testament Christian. I mean, if that's the case, why, let's just, why preach the Ten Commandments? Why preach Deuteronomy? He says it doesn't nullify it. It actually puts an exclamation point on it. How? Because it shows that faith in Christ provides the payment, the penalty of death owed the sinner that the Old Testament consistently teaches. The law demands death for not fulfilling it. It fulfills the law's intended purpose, which is to drive us to Christ as a tutor. That's what Galatians chapter 3, verse 21 says. Further, it gives believers the ability to believe it. Romans 8, 1 to 4, we'll get there. We have the ability to believe in the nuances of the law that are applicable because we have faith in Christ. Now, I know what you're saying. Hang on. Talking out of both sides of your mouth, Rick. We're saved by faith. Yep, but when we're saved by faith, it's faith that's not alone, right? Yep, so something about the law comes in after faith as a verifying part of our faith. Yes, how does that work out? Jesus tells us, turn to Matthew chapter 22. This is how we establish. This is how we fulfill the law. This is the words of Christ. We can't do any better than quoting the incarnate Son of God in answering this riddle. How can the New Testament believer apply Old Testament law? Are we supposed to be Nazarites, grow long hair, big long sideburns? I guess the guys with all those chops in the 70s were closer than us then. Are we supposed to not eat shrimp and... Pork? I mean, what, what, how, what's our relationship to the law? Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse, 20, verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, I just love that, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, when you think lawyer, don't think of an attorney today. When you think of lawyer, think of a scribe, an expert in Jewish law. That's, he was a theologian. One of them, a, an expert, a theologian, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment, the great commandment in the law? And you know what he was doing? He was saying, well, if he can, think, if he can do one, I will find a better one or another one. Or I'll say, what about this? What about that? Jesus, I, I love Jesus, but I love him in this context all the more. I love to watch him in action. I love to watch them try to trap God. I mean, here's a little human Saying to God in the flesh, okay, I'm going to lay out a riddle. I'm going to trap you in a corner. You're not going to be able to answer. Which is the great commandment? 
And Jesus said, I'll answer that. And a second question you're not answering. He said to him, tell you what the great commandment is. You shall love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, the greatest thing in the law. The second is like it. And they're going, time out, hang on. We didn't ask about the second. We just wanted one. He said, the second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40. If you underline things in your Bible, star, highlight, underline, circle, put an asterisk on top of the page, this is a verse. On these two commandments depend the entire law, the whole law and the prophets, the designation for the whole Old Testament. Let's back out of that then. Jesus is saying every command, every story, everything in the Old Testament can be relegated to one of two categories. This informs us as a believer in Christ, a Christian, this informs us as to principles that will help us love God better. And, or, it informs us of principles that will allow us and teach us to love others as we love ourselves. Illustration we, we talk about from time to time is that, remember in um, the book of the law, Exodus 24 and 25, when he's given these laws, and he says, when you, when you, cre- when you have your house, when you, build, you get in the land, you're going to be out of tents, you're going to build your house, I want you to put a parapet, a guardrail around the top of your house, and if, there's a lot of if-then law. If, if your neighbor's on your roof and he falls off and there's no uh, um, uh, parapet, there's no, no guardrail, you'll be guilty of murder. But there is a guardrail and he falls through that, then you're not guilty of murder. You're going, what is that about? It's simple. Care for your neighbors by putting a guardrail on your roof. Love your neighbor as yourself. Tie him in, not just you. You are responsible, God says through through Christ, to love God and to love others. Now back to Romans 3. How do we establish the law? Because it's only through the grace that comes in the salvation given, in justification by faith in Christ, that gives us the enablement and the power to be sanctified by loving God and loving others. We actually can obey the spirit of the law in a way that a legalist cannot The doctrine of justification by faith alone does not nullify or dissolve the law. It actually makes it meaningful. Why? Because none of us are trying to obey all those rules to go to heaven. You know what we're trying to do? Get the principles out of that rule that teaches us how to love God and love others so that we can be better Christians, not better Jews. Jesus met all the demands of the law. He fully satisfied the law's requirements. There is one way then to salvation, and it's through the only one who has that. Now we're back to the whole, whole uh, crux of the matter. Let me boil it all down. We said over and over, God looks at us as righteous. He declares us righteous. How does he do that? He doesn't just say, okay, you're righteous, you're not. He declares us righteous because we believe in the one who alone fulfilled all righteousness and God takes his righteousness and gives it to us, imputes it to our account. 
and takes our sin and what we deserve because of our violation of God's law and God's standards of not loving him and not loving others and loving ourselves and he places that on Christ on the cross. We establish the law in sola fide. We don't throw it away. That only makes sense if we understand what Jesus said, that the law is to teach us how to love God and love others, not giving us a bunch of rules so that we can obey enough of them and be on the, on the side of the, the, uh, the fulcrum that gives us goodness and our badness is up. Not at all. There's one way to salvation, Jews and Gentiles, the learned and the uneducated, the rich, the poor, the popular, the obscure, for the children of Christian parents, for the children of unbelieving parents. All, Paul says, must come to God by grace through faith in his son and what he's done. It's simple. But it's not easy. To do that means you, you give up all reliance on self. You abandon self-help and openly admit that without God and his grace, you are hopeless. And then you stand back and say, really? You want me to be righteous? Yes. I can't be, I know. So I'm going to declare you righteous, God says. How will you do that? By believing what I've done for you. And again, we all should say, really? That's it? And he says, yeah, that's it. But the faith that saves you has necessary fruit. Incredible salvation. One God, one way. Now, if you were a Jew, you would come to this point and say, yes, but I don't think, I'm suspicious that that worked its way out in the patriarchs and in the people of the Old Testament. And Paul says, I know you think that. So for the next chapter, chapter 4, I'm going to show you how Abraham, your greatest, uh, your father of the nation, your greatest patriarch, I'm going to show you how he was justified by faith alone. And chapter 4 is going to rot our worlds in understanding the Jewish faith and its intention and the wrong applications that have flown out, flowed out of that through the centuries. If you know Christ, be freshly amazed. If you don't, what a great day. What a great day to be at Mission Road Bible Church with people around you who are believers who would love to tell you what it means to be saved by grace through believing what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Make sure that you come to the prayer room in just a moment or you just talk to someone around you. We would love to say, this is what it means. Don't leave. Please don't leave. Lunch is not that important. Don't leave without knowing the eternal destination of your soul. Father, we are freshly amazed by grace. I, I just marvel that you did this. Help us to know what the mission is. Cause us to know what the gospel is. 
to put into context every ministry, whether it's mercy or social or justice, and to put all those in the wake of the gospel, not in front of or instead of the gospel. Your heart is to save sinners. Make that our heart as well. See, sinners saved by grace because they believed you through faith and they treasure what you did by crushing your son and raising him from the dead. Inform us, instruct us, and encourage us to be men and women who see each other in this room and in this body as sources of gospel encouragement and receivers of gospel encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.